Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is episode 2668, and I have got one today that I'm going to describe as this episode is fire. This guy, I don't know why it took me 12 years to find him. I don't know why it took us 12 years to meet. There's actually a point in this episode where I give a disclaimer. We don't know each other, and we've never had a conversation before, and we don't really follow each other's work. Um, this guy's like an eccentric version of me, if such a thing exists, as though I'm not as eccentric as I already am. Like, just amp me up, and you got this guy. This guy is amazing. He's talking to us about the future of food, the future of environmentalism, the future of the planet. We're going to talk about GMOs. We're going to talk about how to find plants that actually grow. We're going to talk about so many. This guy's amazing. He has been in his travels and in his effort to learn more about how we can feed ourselves to 125 countries along with his team. He's led more than 500 expeditions in the pursuit of personally tracking down, eating, and recording the edible plants of the world. His premise is that humans conquered the globe by intentionally discerning what plants they could eat. That allowed our ancient ancestors to expand their populations and dominate the world. Simcox believes that mankind's future depends on understanding what the humans of the past ate. He's amazing. And the first hour of this interview just goes flawlessly. And then, well... As you might imagine, technology throws us a curve. Um, I had to piece together about seven reconnects with Joseph, where I would at, we'd have a great conversation going. I'm asking him a question, he'd start answering it, and it would start and like that. And so that threw him off on having to come back. So there is a little bit of um, difficulty toward the end of this one. I, I, I merged it all together as best I could. I left everything I could that was actually useful to the conversation for you. So there might be a point where you hear a repeat or something or a, a hiccup or a skip. It's totally worth it. I'm going to have Joseph back on. We would have probably went, this is a long episode. We probably would have went at least a half hour more today. There's so many things that I want to talk to this guy about. He's awesome. I'm going to encourage you now to check him out on social media. Check out his website. Follow him. Um, you'll hear about a book that he published today, but unfortunately it's only available in Japanese right now, but it will be coming out. But he's got more coming. This guy is amazing. If you can't tell, I'm excited that I get you to introduce uh, get to introduce you to him today. Again, Joseph Simcox. We'll have him on in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. Man, I'll tell you what, I always say it, but it's I say it all the time because it's true. Gun, no ammo, expensive club. That's all you got. Guns without ammo can't do the job of a gun. Maybe you can sell it and make some money on it. But if you want a gun to do what a gun's supposed to do, you got to have ammo. That means you need to stock up. You want to do that. Uh, the sponsor's been loyal to us like for eight and a half years now, BulkAmmo.com. All the common calibers you need, and they ship so quickly. You'll like, you'll be like, what is this box? Where did this bulk ammo? I ordered that like two days ago. Like, it's like that fast. It's crazy. And why, you know, even with, with COVID now, it's a lot more of a pain in the butt to go to stores and stuff. But like, I've never really enjoyed going to the store to buy ammo. The fact that I can order it and have it shipped to my house lightning fast, that's what I do and you save money by doing it. Check them out today, bulkammo.com. Next up today, JM Bullion. I have recommended 5 to 10% of your net wealth in silver and gold since the day I started the show. And the day you hear me say it's been a great run, but this is the last TSP, whatever the hell that is, unless I kick off before I get to say it, you'll probably hear me say the same thing. It's one of the, the timeless pieces of advice that I can give you. It's worked 
for hundreds and thousands of years is advice. It's been solid advice. It always has been. I believe it always will be. It's the anonymous form of wealth. So you know you want to have silver and gold in your life. So why get it from Jam Bullion? Well, let's see, though. If you're an MSB member, you can get a discount. All orders over $100 ship free. I don't know why you're ordering less than $100 worth of silver or gold anyway if you're ordering it. Just wait and order it next month if you have to combine orders. Um, they have supported this show for, like almost, like I said, almost nine years now. Uh, they have better pricing than the bigger silver houses like Monix and Atmix. And I can talk directly to the president of the company if there's a problem. So my question would actually be, why would you buy it from anybody else? I can't even see why you would. You're going to get the same silver, pay more money with not as good customer service without them being the company that supports the show that you love. So there you go. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, and, and dig on into this. Again, I want to introduce our special guest today. This, is, this guy was like finding a long-lost freaking brother, man. Joseph Simcox. Again, he calls himself a botanical explorer, traveled the world for decades, documenting the world's wild and domesticated edible plants. Awesome, awesome guy with that. Hey, Joseph, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you, Jack. I've been uh, excited about this for quite a few weeks. I've been driving around uh, Sweden for the last three weeks and just escaping this whole pandemic issue, which has, hasn't really touched Sweden like the other parts of the world. But wait a minute. We got we to gotta go, go into that before we go to our subject today, because the media tells me that everybody in Sweden's just falling over and dying like, like crazy over there. And that, like you're in the middle of like the death capital of the world right now. You're saying that's not true? Well, okay, look, this is exactly why I came here, because the same issue that you're concerned about was of concern to me. I was yeah. in Paraguay on March the 5th. I got in a plane. I flew to Munich, Germany, and I was anticipating being there four or five days, and all hell came down. Everything locked up. I got stuck in Germany for seven weeks. And so one of the most interesting things that occurred is the darling of the Western media, the darling of the European media, Sweden. It was the darling in almost any social circumstance. But yet, here it was now with a twisted plot. And the media started to turn on Sweden. And that very curious thing that happened piped my attention. So I said to myself, can I go to Sweden? I heard it wasn't <laughs> locked down. So I got on a plane and I flew to Sweden. I went. I left the airport in Munich. And I think there were roughly 10 flights that day in an airport of international stature. So it was, it was a ghost it was completely devoid of passengers. I think we were one of 10 flights an entire day. I get to Frankfurt, a few more passengers, get to the airport in Stockholm. Incredible. The customs and officials, they greeted me and they kind of were surprised that I was flying into Sweden, seeing everyone was supposed to be so scared. But it was my prevailing idea that the Swedes were on to something because as I was thinking about it myself, there's only two ways out. Either everyone's going to get completely vaccinated or you're going to find some way to live with it. And Sweden had taken that road. Mm. And so everything that I was hearing about when I started publishing on my Facebook with all my followers, it was amazing how many people came along and were saying, you know, man, you're going to drop dead there. Just like you said, Jack. I mean, I thought people would be dropping dead in the streets if we're not controlling this. Right. No, yeah. far from the completely to the contrary. People here have a certain perspective about what it means to be safe. They have prudence. They're not, for the general part, they're not on top of you speaking. I mean, a few times I've gone into stores, which, by the way, all the stores are open. All the restaurants are open. All the beauty salons are open. I've, I've been here now for three and a half weeks, and I've traveled the extent of the country to the far north, to the far eastern confines, and even down to the south central parts. And I've stayed in about 10 hotels. 
and I have spoken with hundreds and hundreds of people, and the general consensus is there's only two ways out. You do the way we're doing it, or you believe that there's going to be an endless supply of vaccines and everyone's going to be vaccinated. And so now we're seeing the rest of Europe doing exactly what Sweden did three or four weeks ago. Now, they admit that in the beginning, they were probably a little bit on the um, lack of caution side when it came Mainly to, with the elder care facilities, right? They, they, exactly. And they, exactly. They did something no, no government ever does. They said, we screwed up. Like, no government in history that I've ever seen has come out and said, hey, we messed this up. It's our fault. But they did that. Because they're totally unique in the way they handle things, and then they said, they "So we're going to fix, we're going to fix this, right?" And they did, and their death rate has just plummeted. I mean, I've, I've watched it. I, I've been oh, look, posting look, it to social yeah, media. You're completely correct about that. And what they like to say in the Western media, again, going back, I, I saw Bloomberg saying, "Oh, well, despite the fact that they didn't have a lockdown, their economy is suffering." Well, no, no, this is supposed to be a major world health pandemic, but the issue is. That despite that, society is carrying on. And as I look at our society in the United States, I'm wondering, you know, how are people going to get out of this fear mongering? Because it is so intense. It's unbelievable. Ask me the question about masks. People are not wearing masks unless they're <laughs> health compromised here. Yeah. Health yeah. compromised. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine or in very, very forced, dense, maybe, you know. Um, I don't want to go too much more into this because we have a totally different subject to cover, but I, I find this very interesting since you're actually on the ground there and I've been I'm promoting what that's right. Promoting what Sweden's been doing since since almost the very beginning, especially like what sold me was the honesty and the integrity of the government coming out and saying this is the mistake we made. This explains this this additional, you know, death uh, number. And with this gone, we look better than you, so stop telling us we're wrong. Oh, you and, better believe it. And that you better believe it. won me over, and it, it just it just makes sense to me. But, um, yeah, I, I, I'm really glad. I didn't know you were in Sweden, so that's just like a bonus on today's show. Well, it is a bonus. You know, I thought I was going to come here and do some foraging. That was a, a secondary aspect of my endeavor. But I ended up traveling to the Sami country, to Lapland. And it was still under about two yards of snow in the far north. It's it's really far north. In fact, Stockholm, where I am right now, is 59 latitude. So it is much, much farther north than, say, Detroit, Michigan or New York City. It's far, far north. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, it is kind of the top of the world, man. So let's uh, let's break off that. Maybe we'll even come back to it toward the end here, because I think this is just fascinating. Um, but we want to talk about growing our own food today, taking care of the planet, things like that. Um, before we even dig into that though, like who the hell is Joseph Simcox, man? Kind of what's your background and how did, how did you end up in the world that you're in today? Okay. Well, you know, it's, it's the question that is, uh, I ask myself who I am because the real reason behind what I do is because I love humans. So a lot of people think that I'm just a plant geek, somebody who is a botanical explorer and they don't realize there's an inspiration behind this that goes all the way back to my childhood, the relationship between plants and humans. Because for me, it's always been that. It's that we're somehow put in this world. And as a believer, I think that God created all this amazing world for us. And I sit there and, and I've marveled since a child about the beauty that we have. And so it naturally comes down to the fact that if we have all this beauty, how can we use it for the betterment of humans and how can we cohabitate? How can we coexist with the beautiful nature we have? Because these are probably the key issues. So ever since I was a little kid, 
I've been mesmerized by the beauty of plants and, and what they offer humans. And I have some stories which people find quite quirky because when I was a seven-year-old boy, I remember distinctly for my birthday, it was my seventh birthday, I asked my parents, I said, I want squash. And my mom and dad, they, they knew kind of who I was, but they said, you don't want any toys or anything? I said, no, I want squash. So my dad, <laughs> my dad went out and bought me a bunch of squash. And so I have a picture of myself as a little kid with this big, huge grin on my face with my two little siblings. And we're just sitting there with all these squash on the table. And I have proof that it goes back that long, this, this passion and insanity. So I didn't really study any of this in a formal way, which you know, it basically has to do with what you think you need to learn because what you really love to learn, sometimes you don't need to go through formal education to become, you know, very scholarly in that particular endeavor because it's your passion. So I actually went to university and studied mathematics and philosophy because I thought that was something that would at least pike my um, uh, attention span a lot more than something I already was impassioned with. And so that's where my education was, if you were to talk about formalities, but as far as I would say to people, there isn't another person on the planet who can challenge me now with the knowledge of the world's edible plant resources. So I've kind of had that as a niche, and I believe that will follow sweet in years to come on how I propose to uh, direct the future of humanity if I'm so fortunate to do so. <laughs> I think we all direct the future of humanity humanity on some level, depending on our circles of influence. So I think that... Oh, you know, we hope so for the better, I yeah, hope, right? Yeah, we, I think we all do. And I think that's something like... I, I, I seldom hear people put it that way, but I'm, I'm glad to hear you put it that way because I think people need to think about that because plenty of people are influencing humanity without knowing it, and that can be kind of dangerous. But uh, on another thing uh, here altogether... Since we're going to be talking about food, humanity, the environment, what, in your opinion, are the biggest issues today facing humanity with regard to the environment? Okay, well, well, certainly we're in an era which, if you really contemplate what is going on, humans have been more and more torn from the relationship that they have with nature. Now, the exact how and why varies from place to place, but the overall theme has been the allure of convenience. And when I say the allure of convenience, I mean things are so easy that we don't have to actually be connected. You go to a store to get food. 50, 60, 70 years ago, anywhere from 50 to 60 percent of Americans produced or were somehow integrally involved in the production of food that they ate whether they went to the farm and bought it and processed it, canning or freezing, or whether they raised it in their own garden, that is a vast logistical change to the present. Whereas most people, especially kids, if you were to ask children where milk comes from, they're confounded nowadays. Even 40% of children don't know that milk comes from a cow because they go to the, the grocery store aisle and they see rice milk, almond milk, cashew, cashew milk. Imagine that. We're completely detached from the nature that we're ever so dependent on. We aren't less dependent on nature. We're just detached from it, which puts us in in a very large sense in the urbanized populations of the world. It puts us in a most vulnerable position. Imagine in this particular scenario we're living in, this pandemic right now. If it was a little bit more uh, drawn out, the devastating effects of that would be ever more obvious. In fact, here in Sweden... 
one of the issues I had last night with a group of people is the discussion of resiliency and the ability to self-sustain. What if we were cut off from everything? Can we sustain ourselves? And the answer for a great part of the metropolitan and urban areas of the world is absolutely not. We cannot sustain ourselves. We can't even imagine feeding ourselves after just a few short days if things are cut off. Well, I, I agree with that. And I think that what that makes me think of, there was one of the, um, it was one of the cooking shows. I'm big into food and cooking. I think one of the greatest ways to understand a culture is to share its food. And so I've always been big into that. And it was somewhere in like Malaysia or Taiwan or Okinawa or somewhere like that. And it was a, it was probably Vietnam actually now that I think about it, but they were somewhere in a, a village environment, fairly poor population. And I think it was Andrew Zimmer, but the, the lady who was, cooking and making the meal was using some meat and she was talking about what a luxury it was and they don't usually have it and they did it because he was a guest and this is all being done through a translator and that mostly what they ate was vegetables and Andrew or whoever it was asked through the translator why is that because they're so inexpensive and the translator you could tell like had this struggle explaining what they meant by inexpensive with the the lady and she finally came back with like no, there's, there's not, they don't cost anything. We, we, we eat mostly vegetables because it's what we can easily make for ourselves. So when exactly. he was asking about expense, she didn't even have a concept of what expense was because even the meat they ate was like from the potbelly pigs that ran around in the hills in their backyard. Like they were so self-sufficient that while meat was still a luxury, it wasn't because it was an expense. It was because of the quantity they could sustainably produce. And okay. the, the and so, divorce from reality with that versus the type of thinking you're talking about is massive. It's huge. It, it's absolutely huge. It's absolutely huge. And one of the salient uh, aspects to understand about this is the contrast between the economical designation of food value and those who are primarily self-sufficient. It happens. Uh, a good example I use regularly is the example of the relatively economically poor people in the Republic of Georgia, the former Soviet Union. These people don't have a lot of money, but as far as their standard of living, I would contend that, albeit they don't have cars and they don't have a lot of things that would look like uh, sundry um, attachments that are necessary for modern life, they live in very nice structures, very nice homes, many of them generational homes that go back even hundreds of years, and they are intent upon self-sufficiency. So although they lack financial uh, accruement, they have everything they need to live a good life. And these people are renowned the world over for having very long lifespans, and it's not unusual to see octogenarians and non-octogenarians out in the uh, pasture working, cows hmm. digging up potatoes. I've seen 80-, 90-year-old people digging potatoes up. So there's a self-sufficiency, and we've lost that in the modern world. We can't take care of ourselves anymore, which has both economic and, shall we say, psychological implications because we don't really even know who we are anymore. And that's one of the themes in a greater sense of what I want to talk about for the future. Got you. Got you, man. So whenever I get into discussions like this, a lot of times it gets dragged into the entire politics of climate change. Now, what I've always said is that 
I don't believe in the mainstream mer- uh, narrative on climate change. I believe in climate change. And neither change. do I. You, okay, you're cool. Not gonna have a, right. You're not going to have a conflict with me on this issue. I, I actually, reading your notes, I, I pretty much surmise that. I'm just interested in your take on the way I'm coming at this. So I don't believe in, in, in it the way that it is portrayed. I do believe climate change is, has shifted. And I do believe – I think one of the reasons you get this whole scientific consensus is if, if I ask you this question, do humans cause climate change? Does human activity cause the climate to change? You'd probably say yes. Of course it does. That doesn't mean that I believe in the mainstream narrative of climate change. But my assertion to the other side of that debate that's big into environmentalism, ecology, permaculture, all the stuff that I'm into is if you convinced me 100% you were right, I wouldn't change one thing that I'm already doing. I would still live my life the exact same way. But I, I feel like a lot of those people, if, if, if I convinced them that they were wrong, if they became convinced that they were wrong, they would cease doing or cease advocating many of the things that they advocate for because they're so myopic on this one thing that's become like a scientific religion cult that they there don't understand go. the holistic that, nature that's, of this. That's the, that's the Q word for me. It's become a religion and it's become a cult. Now, let's try to step back for a second and look what has happened simultaneously in the world we are living over the last 50 or let's give it 100 years. And what I propose as one of the shifting uh, consensus is that humans in the modernized world, let's talk of the United States, let's talk of Australia, let's talk of Western Europe. And I can't really include the same perspective for the Asian uh you know, philosophies, because I'm a little bit out of that realm, but I can at least speak for those that I've mentioned. In those areas, we've seen an enormous amount of secularization, a kind of um, abandoning or a kind of abstraction or distraction from the belief in God. Now, people are somewhat confused when I start talking about secularism, and then I bring it into this theory of um, climate change and why, because people inevitably need a purpose. People inevitably need to have a cause, and that is something that succinctly the belief in God answers. It answers our purpose in life. We don't get the the 100% answer, but at least for, say, my example, I believe there's a big uh, omnipotent and omniscient being behind me who gives me purpose. If you're devoid of that, You have to find another purpose. So it isn't surprising at all to me that people become vegans and literally do it in a religious way because it gives purpose to their life. They Mm. have a conformity. They have a discipline. They have a certain rhythm. Same thing with climate change. When you're confronted with so many extraordinary challenges and you are, as I have already proposed, detached from nature itself because of your living style, the sentient, you know, um, ability to connect with nature is always there. So this is a way of connecting. And it's almost, as you say, a cult or religious. Because if you ask these people what the implications are and what they can actually do, well, they talk about reducing CO2 because that's one of the buzzwords. But remember, these are very clever, clever marketing strategies of individuals who thought of very clever ways to gain from the demise of someone else. And it's a very interesting scenario, which would be an entire program of itself. But let's go into that then about climate change. On the uh, microscopic level, it doesn't take very much uh, intuition to see the difference. Have a bunch of trees in in a yard in the southwest and cut them down. 
and you'll see a vast difference sure. from before and after. Sure. I remember reading – I think you find this interesting. I remember reading um, – it was a journal from one of the men who cut timbers in like Montana, Idaho, et cetera, like that for the silver mines in the 1800s. And he journaled on how as they cut the trees, they watched the creeks dried up. So that's what I'm saying. Absolutely. If you ask if men and human activity can change climate – at the at the micro level, and then that micro level have a macro effect. Absolutely, but Absolutely. The, the air you exhale is not making Mars warmer, which is also warming. It's just crazy to me. A- absolutely, absolutely not. And, and the other thing about us as relatively uh, temporal beings, we don't last very long. If we have a hundred year olds in our midst, we think they're very old. So, uh, so when we look at nature. We look at it in our chronology, in our time frame, because we move very quick and we're very short-lived. But nature works on a much different timeline. If we were all to disappear from the planet tomorrow, it wouldn't probably take 50 or 100 years before everything is back and vibrant again. So we're not destroying it in the way that we're saying. We're destroying it for our temporal existence. We cut a 300-year-old tree down. Hey, boy, we're never going to see that tree again because none of us will live to be 300 years old. So there is a reality in that. But when we're talking about destroying nature, mm-mm, that's not the case. We have to live and coexist with nature for our own benefit. And hence, I tell people, much like George Carlin used to remark in his caustic uh, humors, that the planet doesn't need saving, but humanity sure as hell does. We need to save ourselves. And the only way we do that is to work with nature. I, I completely agree with that. So... In, in the stuff that you've been doing, you've been involved with 500 expeditions around the world with a team. Yeah. What are your impressions after so much travel and so much study about the state of the world? Well, there's, a, there's quite a few of them. And when you talk about the state of the world, realize there's an organization that publishes a book, The State of the World, every year, basically. And I would call them very much Malthusian. I would say that National Geographic Society has gone in the last 50 years to become a very Malthusian society uh, in that it, it perpetuates the idea that there are too many humans on the planet. And that's why we have to cut down the populations. And of course, it exacerbates the problem when you're shown, you know, videos of life in a teeming metropolis like Cairo, or you look at uh, Zaire or the Congo now, and you look at Kinshasa and you see the misery in these giant, huge cities, or you look at Mexico City, which is probably uh, outside of Tokyo, the largest city in the world, where roughly uh, 25% of the national population of Mexico lives in one city. These are exacerbated examples of over-concentration of population. Remember now, you just mentioned I've been on 500 expeditions around the world, and in very few cases have I seen where there's too many humans. This shocks people. And I say, have you ever thought about this? Are there too many ants, as in the little insect in the world? Are there too many birds in the world? And and people look at you, and they kind of like, like, that's a strange question to ask. Or what if you ask if there's too many earthworms in the world? I mean, what type of response will you get for that? So let me I, tell you, there's I, some people that say there are, that the earthworms are a problem now. That is the latest stupidity I've heard, that earthworms are destroying the forest. You're silent really? because I, that just that just hit you in the – you're like, what? You know what? Yeah. Let's not go there now, but Google it later and you'll see I'm not making it up. I, I, I'm really piped by that one. I, I will look <laughs> that up, Jack. Thank you so much. So, So to that point – and, and I'll have to contend with these over-earthwormers uh, now. 
the thing that I say is that humans have an extraordinary uh, poesis. They, they have the capability to create and they have a, a capability to coexist. If I liken ourselves to giant earthworms, we can actually do the earth an incredible justice and we can do things with nature that are very perpetuating. Now, for example, a nursery, a, a horticultural nursery has the capacity to take nature's bounty and profoundly increase its its substantial abilities. For example, in, in nature, a tree produces thousands of seeds and maybe those thousand seeds fall and touch the ground and only one or two reach a certain point where they germinate and then reach maturity one or two. So they supplant, they replace the population. That's what nature does. But if a human intercedes and they collect those seeds and they take them to a nursery, we may have 5,000, 10,000 seedlings, which can all become trees if we take good care of them, which is an astounding ability to example, exemplify how human beings can be a positive influence with nature. And these banal subjects are often ignored when it comes to the more esoteric sciences because they don't like to uh, think about simple solutions. And I'm sure you being very involved in permaculture have thought about this over and again. Why are these talking heads, why are these ivory tower eggheads not coming up with practical solutions? Because quite frankly, that isn't what feeds their establishment. No, You have to do no. intense scientific research and documentation when the damn problem is right before you plant trees, but it's too boring. I mean, that's a, that's a menial task for no brainers. We well, can't here's the thing, that. right? So take your, take your political spectrum. Go to your complete, total leftist taxes should be 90% cradle to grave entitlement culture. And then go every permutation of that all the way over to somebody like me that's an anarchist. And take Absolutely. everybody in there and say, hey, we should plant more trees. 95% of the people across that spectrum will go, okay, that, that makes, I can get on board with that. Even if I'm going, I really don't want the government paying for the trees, but I'll be like, but the government spends many money anyway. So yeah, let's plant trees. So it's a solution that works that everybody can agree on. If we said, hey, you know what? When we mine coal, we're putting mercury into the ocean. So even if we're going to mine coal, we should do something about the mercury. Again, 95% of the people from the very extreme to the opposite extreme of the spectrum will go, that, oh, yeah, okay, I'm all down with less mercury in the oceans. Everything that actually works has probably a 90% or higher consensus, and therefore it does absolutely fundamentally nothing to further the agenda of the people you're talking about. Because if it has a consensus, not some fake, fictitious scientific consensus, but a general population consensus, it is not useful for division of the population. Therefore, yeah, whether it right. works or not doesn't yeah, matter. Right. So, so when people sit there and, and talk about the biggest problems in the world, the solutions are right before our eyes. And I say it's either too boring or, as you have pointed out, it doesn't cause division. Because if it causes division, then it creates power scenarios. And this is what the entire system feeds on, just like some type of, uh, of creature on contention. I, I completely agree, man. Um, man, wh what do you say about ecological damage, though? Because okay. when, I, yeah. when, I, when I talk like we're talking right now, I get, you hate the earth, you want the earth to die. You know, I, mean, I get this just 
crazy nonsense. And I am deeply concerned about the ecological damage that we're doing. And I, I, I'm concerned about it in many ways. Like there's certain things I think we need to stop doing, but I also think there's places where we did so much when you just think like, well, we'll just get out of the way and nature will fix it. In some environments and in some climates, no, we have to, we broke it. We have to fix it because I've seen places where it used to be basically scrub forest and it turned into desert and nobody's touched it for 150 years. And you know what it is? It's desert. It's not, it has not come back. Like exactly. I feel like there's places we have to, do you think there's places where we're doing it, it, damage it that can't be, be fixed or we have to fix it? What have you? Okay. Let me give a good, uh, a good scenario that um, perhaps you're familiar with. Have you heard of the, the, the videographer or the producer director, John D. Liu, L I U. Yep. Okay. Yep. So John D. I mean, he isn't, as I would appropriately label an environmentalist, although he has become an environmentalist. Okay. His real claim to fame is his, he was somewhere at the right time to start documenting a reclamation project, which is called the Lois Plateau in China, a severely degraded, devastated area that was on the verge of a desert. And so what they did is they took the hand of man and they said, we are going to regenerate this. We're going to give nature a helping hand to get back. And John, he documented this process over at least 10 or 15 years, taking it from this barren wasteland to which was overgrazed. In fact, you know, Jack, one of the big issues that I find all over the world, which at least temporarily is affecting uh, so many ecosystems, is the uh, just the absolutely incessant overgrazing of land. I mean, and that may be in Ethiopia, that was in Jordan, that may be in Somaliland, that may be in Namibia extraordinary um, devastation, at least on the temporary level, of habitat after habitat after habitat. And so man does have to step in. Man does have to consider his effects because in the end, he's going to make it inviolable for his own survival. So we have to come in and we have to take care of these environments. Happily, nature is able to regenerate because what we still don't have a completely um, efficient knowledge of is the seed bank that lies in repose in the soil. This has been demonstrated over and over and over again. The resiliency of seeds once they are, shall we say, exposed to the elements and they realize they have a chance to germinate and this, the situation is correct according to their you know, habit, that they will regenerate. And so by the helping hand of man, we can certainly reclaim much of the devastated areas of the world that we have uh, inflicted. Now, there's there's certain areas and there's certain types of seeds that are known as recalcitrant, at least in, in a certain terminology, meaning they may not be very well long lived. Some of that is even debatable because as I've seen the virgin forest in uh, Borneo cut down, one of the strange things that uh, follows is you'll see like uh, populations of wild bananas sprout up. Now, wild banana seeds were thought to have a longevity of maybe two, three, four years. And here these forests of diptocarps may be three, four hundred years old. And they're cutting them down. And all of a sudden, these bananas are shooting up. So it's extraordinary, the resiliency of nature. And we don't even understand that. But to, to put in, in short, yes, the hand of man in many cases needs to be uh, put down to help nature regenerate. So we kind of hit on this already, but this concept that one of our problems is overpopulation. We have too many people. 
do, do you feel that there's any validity to that? Do we maybe not have too many people? We have too many people in one place in certain situations. Like, does it make okay. sense to cram? Like, there's the, there's there's two totally different things there, right? There's is is nine billion people too many for planet Earth, or is it smart to cram eight eight point six million people into three hundred square miles like we have in New York City? Like, those are different worlds. Absolutely. You know, uh, one of the books that I read recently was written by a Harvard entomologist, and it's called Half Earth, E.O. Wilson. And E.O. Wilson proposes that half of the world be put together in nature reserves. And I don't know how he exactly uh, purports to move people off the half of the earth, but that's his idea to sustain the planet. And it's a rather, um, well, I think it's a rather preposterous one. When it comes to populations, and, and having observed different countries, remember, I've been to now about 130 different countries on over 500 expeditions. And one of the first things that I do when I hit a country is I want to evaluate the relationship between humans and the environment. And more often than not, I will look at environments and I'll say, you know, the hand of man here can make it so much more productive. And much of the land is unused. Much of the land is fallow. And so to my surprise... I would say that in most places in the world, we need more human hands to assist nature because not enough is being done to work with it. And the productivity of the land is something that I will get into as we move through this. But let's take the basket case example as the world's demographics would go. Bangladesh, about the size of Michigan, maybe 120 million people now. It seems to be extremely overpopulated. But even when I was in Bangladesh... I would look at the place and I would say, based on the climate, based upon the rainfall patterns, based upon the temperature pattern, this place can be this much more productive. And I'm not talking one time, two time. I'm talking 10 times. We can't talk industrial agriculture perspectives to understand how productive the world can be. We have to take into consideration real planting, which allows for diversity of plants that will allow humans to have an extraordinary number of things to harvest and eat. So it's a resiliency beyond anything that industrial agriculture can propose. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I also think that when we, we look at that question, we also have to ask ourselves, you know, again, about how we're utilizing resources and how we're utilizing that human population. I think that's what you're hitting on there. Like you mentioned John D. Liu and his most famous work is the Los Plateau in China. And there was a lot of work done on that project, which took completely destroyed land and turned it green again. But there was a lot of work done with heavy equipment. Oh, you better believe it. But there, there was, was a, lot a of human hands. But as I was say, there was a ton. Human. There was a ton of heavy equipment there. But there was a lot of human labor, and that human labor was channeled and did things that the heavy equipment maybe could have never done. You're absolutely right. So if we take – see, this is the dilemma of our future as humans. What are we going to be if we eliminate our need to physically labor? Because humans are now realizing that if we don't have a purpose to labor, we're, we're going to be in a compromised situation where the fact is we're going to have to go to a useless gym to exert ourselves <laughs> instead of doing something productive. So, I mean, it's kind of a uh, counterintuitive thing to eliminate labor because that's our goal to be lazy. And then we have to go to a gym to stay in shape because our muscles and every organ in our body depends upon some type of physical activation. 
So it's, it's a real dilemma. So the response, I say we need to be both intellectual human beings and physical human beings. And to combine those in, in a modern life existence as a hybrid life is probably the most promising of all. We need to work in the environment. Everybody. But now the media constantly tells us that all the world's natural resources are in peril. And, and we're the cause of that. Do you agree with anything about their assessment? Absolutely not. Look, if, if we, we'll start getting into this, this issue about the projection, the, the, let's call it the standard projection of the world with regards to the future of agriculture, the future of the agricultural industry, and the future of feeding humanity. So they're all intertwined. But as I've distilled over the years, the true message that is emanating from these particular sources is that they have established a sales propaganda. That's what is really coming out of these mm. industries. They are setting themselves up to be needed. And that is the ultimate business plan. Yeah. So if you have somebody like Nina Fedorov who sits there and she says, the only way we're going to feed a hungry world with nine billion people, this is her way of, you know, yeah. intonation to make yeah. it sound dramatic, is through genetically modified organisms. Step back a second. Who is Nina Fedorov? Oh, yes, she's on the roster of the National Academy of Science. Says she was a science advisor to the presidents, to Hillary Clinton. And she is an individual who has this laureate who is she's as a laureate. She's well appreciated, right, for all her honors and the things that have been bestowed upon her. But you put her on a podium on a stage with me and I will tear her to pieces about the future of food because <laughs> her myopic vision encompasses maybe 10 or 12 species. Yeah. I think she's probably even dealt with a few halophytes. And this is something which I find completely hilarious is the technological prowess and the sales mechanisms of the universities in America, especially, and also in, in Europe, how they have been able to, for example, convince, um, say the Arabian Peninsula states, Countries like Saudi Arabia, countries like the United Arab Emirates, countries like Oman, countries like Qatar, of their prowess when it comes to desert farming. Remember, we have the University of Arizona, we have the University of Texas, and they extol themselves as preeminent in this field of desert agriculture. So you know what these characters did? They convinced Saudi Arabia a few years back, I don't know if it was a few decades, that they could become self-sufficient in wheat production in Saudi Arabia. Okay. And the Saudi Arabians bought this deal and they <laughs> invested. I mean, I think they had earmarked $12 billion oh, to God. wheat, wheat self-sufficiency yeah, in Saudi Arabia. I just I think of the popular. Hold on. I just want to I just want to point something out that should be immediately obvious to the most casual observer. If you look at the population, the total population of Saudi Arabia and the price of wheat, you could put in enough storage capacity and buy enough wheat for Saudi Arabia to not give a flying shit about wheat for 25 years. No, you're right. Right? You're I mean, right. so, like, this is just dumb. It's just a bad way to spend money. And I have my own opinion about wheat not being the best way to feed a population uh, anyway. Absolutely. But anyway, please go ahead. I just, like, uh, well, no, $12 billion right dollars buys right all the wheat that America produces for a year. I mean, go ahead. Just. Okay, so Nina <laughs> was a exemplary representative in this uh, technological representation for Saudi Arabia as, at one of the universities in this field of, you know, genetic modification, studying what the crop potentials are. And then, of course, you're only dealing with a few crops. Now, mm -hmm. I have a friend uh, in Israel, and one of the things that he used to tell me, he says, look, 
He says, you're studying all these crops that have already been worked on for, you know, decades or centuries, say wheat, rice, corn, beans. He said, and you're doing research on that. You're adding another light in a room that has thousands of light bulbs already in it. He said, but you take one unknown plant that has economic potential and you do research on it. You're taking a room with no light bulb at all and you're turning a light on and that's already lighting the room. Now, how significant the future of food is, is explained by our human past. And this is something like I like to unravel kind of like a mystery story, but I start it like this. If you imagine human beings having originated in, you know, the area of Kenya and Tanzania where they believe Olduvai Gorge, Louis B. Leakey, you know, uh, this original story of how man emanated from there. And you consider that the anthropologists tell us that this happened within 70,000 years that humans spread across the planet in almost all the inhabitable areas. That is quite an astounding undertaking. And it's what I like to point out, the prowess of human beings and also the future that we have on the planet is also dependent on what the humans past used in order to conquer that globe. So nowadays you go to like Whole Foods and you're standing in line and you look at all these magazines and many of them have on their covers, you know, the paleo diet, the paleo mm -hmm. diet. Now, what the hell is the paleo diet? I asked people, I said, the, the paleo diet is essentially the hunter, forager, gatherer diet. So if you consider those humans who spread across the planet, I mean, just think they emanate they come out of Africa, they go into Asia, they go into Europe, they go over into the far Asian corners, they go down into Oceania, they go up and they reach the Bering Straits and then they go down, they go down to North America, which is presently known, and then they go into South America, all the way down to Patagonia. They weren't just eating meat, they weren't just eating crustaceans, they were eating plants and a hell of a lot of plants. So literally thousands and thousands and thousands of species of plants. It's significant to point out that human beings were not just surviving. You know, you're not just on the brink of catastrophe. You're not just on the abyss ready to fall off the cliff. If you are expanding, <laughs> I would contend you're thriving. So in order for your populations to be thriving. To literally out, every part of the planet that can sustain human life. Everywhere. Yeah. So like the only place we didn't go was like, Antarctica. Like that's the only, like when, when no. I, some guy went to Antarctica and went, no, no. This, I'm out of here, and yeah. went back We're to Patagonia. Yeah, like, like yeah, screwed up. You go to Patagonia. <laughs> I was in Patagonia uh, in the first week of March, and I was there because I wanted to see what the Mapuche Indians were eating at the very tip of Tierra del Fuego. I flew down to Ushaya, and I was climbing in the, you know, the, the coastal mountains, and there are several species of plants which are in the carrot family, uh, Apiaceae. And these plants produce like mounds of, they look like stone mounds, they're kind of mound plants. And they produce edible roots that taste somewhat like a peppery carrot. And these Mapuches would eat these. There were tons of leaves. There's certain edible fungi which grow as parasites on trees. They call them Indian bread. So even in the most inhospitable regions for agriculture in our modern day perspective, humans were able to extract food, plant food from the environment. One of the things I wanted to do in, in my little escapade here in Sweden was find out what the Laplanders were eating. But unbeknownst to me, it was still under snow. So I haven't huh. documented that. But it just goes to say that this diversity of plants of the past should be the diversity of food for the future. And it also tells us something about nutrition. So I'll let you 
hit me with another question. Okay. Um, boy, there's a lot to that. Before we move on, actually, I just want to point something out. Well, way back when that segment started, you were talking about basically what people formulate as problem-reaction-solution with the way that they set up all these agendas that they push forward. I just like to run past you as, you know, I spent a lot of my life in sales and marketing and I did a lot of training, like I had different certifications for training, for sales and for marketing, did a lot of consulting, a lot of public speaking. So you learn to take the most basic formulas and make them easily understandable in a way people will remember. The most basic form of selling a product or marketing an idea is something that I call the cash solution, right? Because it sticks in people's head. You make money by doing this. You create a problem. There's your C. You agitate the problem, A. You solve the problem, right, S. And then you help the, the other party implement the solution. And if you do, and if you look at every infomercial ever produced for everything from stuff that actually works to the most junk piece of crap knife known to man, every single one does that. And creating the problem does not necessarily mean there really is a problem. It means creating a problem in the mind of your customer, including a problem that there's a much better way to solve. The knife would be a perfect example. That's why I use it. So I create the problem that, you know what, Joseph, all your knives in your house suck. And when you try to cut a tomato, they, they, they mush. Now, the, the obvious solution to that problem is learn how to take care of your flipping knives and learn how a sharpener works. Because no matter how good the knife no matter how good the knife is, no matter how sharp it is when it comes out of the box, it's going to get dull, and if you can't maintain it, it's going to get dull again. And there's no way around that. It doesn't exist. But instead, I'm going to sell you this knife that you can get with this other knife and this cleaver and this thing and this piece of shit, and you can get two now for a separate fee. If you And it's this and right now, and you can get three payments, so it's easy. It's create, agitate, solve, help. If you look at how all the way up to the concept of carbon credits have been sold to the people of the world, there is no difference in the pattern. The pattern is identical. And I think one of the things about permaculture that's truly liberating is there's so much focus on pattern. And once one comes to the point where they can identify the pattern, then the pattern can no longer be hidden. The pattern's in plain sight. But if you've been conditioned to not see the pattern, you don't see that that's what they're doing. But once you know the pattern, you're like, oh, there it is again. And I, oh, think, absolutely. That, I think it's innately human. And it, that's why it takes 13 years of the education system to beat it the hell out of people. That's what school's for, to beat that pattern recognition out. The same reason you walk by a floor, oh, absolutely. you walk yeah, by a wall among, plate. Among my favorite. You, you say you walk by, you walk out a door and there's a wall plate with light switches. One's up, one's down, one's up, and the other one's up. So it doesn't go up, down, up, down. P a piece of you wants to either flip them all up, all down, or take that last one and change it so the pattern's right. Like, it's not OCD, that's just basic humanity. We see those patterns. And they spend the majority of our childhood literally beating that pattern recognition out of us so that the patterns will work. That is the purpose of education, and it's been the purpose of education for 150 years. You're absolutely – okay, well, I don't know how we met uh, in this particular uh, – okay, We have to do a disclaimer, the, Joe, real quick. We have to do a disclaimer. Joe's not a ringer. Joe and I have never spoken to – people right now are going, this is some bullshit right here. This guy's Jack's twin brother. Joseph and I have never spoken to each other. I just found out we're we connected not. on we're connected on Facebook, but I never see your your stuff. I just actually did a post while this was going on on Facebook and said, "Hey, follow this guy. He's freaking awesome." But I have never spoken to you. I've never even traded emails with you up to today, and, and, and this is a level of synchronicity that I don't get very often. 
Okay, well, this is really particularly interesting because what I have tried to tell people is much of what we believe has been enculturated in us from our earliest childhood. If you, I'm sure you know John Gatto and Weapons of Mass Instruction. Yeah. Uh, that's what, one of my favorite books or Dumbing Us Down or The Leipzig Connection. So I advocate people to read these three books to understand exactly what you are just talking about, how we're reprogrammed, how we're conformed, and how we're taught to think in ways that make us susceptible to the acceptance of all these things that are contradictory to our intuition. Because humans have a certain intuition, and we've been taught against it. We're actually forced to conform because that's how the system is. It beats us into us, like you say. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Anyway, let's let's go, let's go from there. I just I had to put that disclaimer out because people are like, God, who who's this guy? Where did Jack find this guy? I, he just submitted a guest okay, form, well, guys. Let, let's take this little story <laughs> then of Monsanto, okay, and, and expose some of the issues which are pertinent. Pertinent. The first thing is, I say it's been a sales campaign, and you've already marked out how that sales campaign was constructed. And I will elaborate only to say that farmers in the olden days, like my grandfather, would get on their Ellis Chalmer tractor, and they would go down the rows of the navy beans, and they would cultivate them, and that's how it was done. A modern-day farmer whose son perhaps went to the FFA and, and was indoctrinated in the processes of modern agro-industrial cause thinks that it's all about convenience and it's all about you know solving the problem like you said and the way to do that is to use what has been accepted by the majority of farmers and is efficient now if somebody were to come and tell my grandfather who's long been dead god rest his soul that he could not plant the seeds of his soybeans for the next year's harvest he would he would he would say in no uncertain terms what they could do and where they could do it. I think too. somebody would get buried in the middle of a bean field with with a backhoe. That's that's what would oh, happen easy. if you did this to our grandparents. They would have killed you with a no, shotgun and buried you. And the bean field the next year, there would have been this place where the beans grew extra high and darker green, and that would be oh. underneath that spot would be where your corpse was. That, that's oh, I mean, what would have imagine happened. Imagine somebody telling my grandfather, you're going to sign on the dotted line and you can't plant your beans that you're growing. Yeah. He, he would. I mean, yeah. this is this is not the way farmers were for thousands of years. I mean, you that's what you had. You had your seeds. And this is what we've allowed to be extirpated from the American farmer, from farmers all over the world in the most contrived public relations stunt that has ever taken place, along with the cohort of legal teams and lawyers who have nothing but their own interests in mind, nothing about American people, nothing about the future. This is a devastating and obnoxious thing. But there's hope at the end of the tunnel. Right now in the state of Iowa, one of my very dear friends who I want to connect you with for an interview or many interviews is Dr. Michael McNeil. Are you familiar with him? I am not, but please tell him to fill oh out a guest for him. Get ready. This guy's he's about 75 right now. He's a super genius. And he is a man who knows what he's talking about. Dr. McNeil started out an agriculture organic approach. And he said, okay, I'm going to do that little solution thing. I'm going to show these guys the problem. And I'm going to show them all the worthless investment that they're putting into these industrial uh, mechanisms. And I'm going to show how they can make money. And with that simple approach, he's gone from roughly 200 acres of organic production in central Iowa to something over 
I think it's 75,000 acres. I could be wrong. It could be 70. No, no, it's about 75,000 acres. I was on the phone with him about a week and a half ago, and he repeated the number to me. And this is in a mere four or five years. Why is it happening? Because farmers are looking at their colleagues and saying, you're making money? You're actually making money doing it this way? And it's astonishing how we can turn around. So am I gloom and doom about all this? No, not. I believe that practicality will return to America and I will believe that we will start doing certain things in ways that strike, you know, common sense. It goes back to common sense. You don't spray something that is a deadly chemical that you don't want to put in your veins uh, onto your plants that you're going to eat or feed to your cows. It's going to come down to, you know, people are seeing the effects. Anyway, the idea that genetically modified organisms are our salvation is another propaganda tool because my question is, okay, you're worried about feeding the world and you're saying you're going to grow corn in a hotter and drier place. Do you even know what kind of food plants grow in hotter and drier places that fit this particular uh, descriptive uh, place you're talking about? And the reality is they don't have an idea. They don't have a single idea because they're microscopic in their vision. They have a very, very limited... Well, they have an idea. Uh, the scope. idea is sell chemicals and sell seeds and patent it so that you're locked into buying from them. That's that's the entirety okay, of their idea. That's it. But their idea has yeah. nothing to do with feeding people. With reality. I, yeah, they, I remember somebody that worked for Monsanto before they were bought out um, that was talking about how well, a new employee was talking about the vision the CEO had for the company with feeding the world. And one of the fellow employees said, that guy doesn't have a clue what we do here. The CEO, he's like, he doesn't have a clue what we do here. That's not what this is about. We sell chemicals. That's what we do. And that guy eventually quit and went to go work somewhere else because he actually he had bought into that grand vision. But like all the people that actually did the work said, he doesn't know. He's, he's a mouthpiece. He doesn't have a clue what we do he here. He doesn't have a clue what we're doing. The CEO well, yeah, doesn't have a clue, have... right? That's how the people that were like high-level VPs felt about it. Doesn't, doesn't even know what well, we do. I think we have to give Mitt Romney a certain amount of credit for having turned Monsanto around. You know, he, he yeah. restructured it as a green company. That was one of his uh, great uh, tactics that he accomplished. One of the Very greatest, one of Mitt the greatest greenwashings in... of all time. I agree. <laughs> really, yeah. one of the great greenwashings. Anyway, so um, what about food security? People talk about it all gloom and doom. You've kind of mentioned that. What can we actually do? Because the proponents of GMOs say, but it feeds the world, right? And, and so what can we do to improve food security without going down that road any further than we already have? Well, I think, it, first of all, it takes its victim in the fact that that is proposed without even considering what the world's demographics are. <laughs> Let's pull out of our uh, out of our little bag here the country of India, 1.2 billion people. There is no way that 800 million of them, 900 million of them are ever going to be white collar workers. So what are they going to do? Well, maybe with the Malthusians they would like to just get rid of them, you know, get rid of all those people, but Assuming that they still are around and assuming that they still are living, what do 900 million people do? They're not going to be doing office jobs. They're not even going to be blue-collar workers. The reality is likely that they will be on their little plots of land in some type of self-sufficiency program. So what we can do is to stress that the world has unimaginable opportunity. Nature offers us a gamut of plants that may total in the 
tens of thousands. If I assume, you know, speculatively that there's between 300 and 500,000 species of plants, it's more or less a taxonomic issue at this point. That tells us there's a lot of different kinds of plants. And if only 10% of those plants have edible aspects, we're talking about 30 to 50,000 species of plants. And when you think that 85 to 95% of the world's calories come from 12 plants, it kind of puts in perspective what we aren't using. I have just claimed that there's 30 to 50,000 edible plants without even blinking an eye. And yet the majority of the food that we get comes from 10 or 12. Now, how did this happen is the first question. And is it the future is the second question. First of all, it likely happened just because of copycatism, where people copied their neighbor. Hmm. How many times have you been in a in a place and you see somebody selling carrots and then you see another person selling carrots and, and you say, is that all they can grow here? No, that's not all they can grow here. But somebody, John down the street was selling carrots and he was making a little money. So the other family down the street decided they would raise carrots too. So the copycat mechanism has actually been destructive to biodiversity in the sense that people don't think outside the box. They just copy their neighbor. What we need to do for the future is to really put in perspective what these plants offer us. And that's what I've been trying to do for the last 25 years is to document this in a first person way so that when someone comes up to me and says, oh, do you really think that uh, this particular plant offers food potential? I said, well, not only that, I ate it. It's delicious. And of course, I have this perspective in my mind, how it can be put here, kind of like a pellet of an artist I'm with plants where it can be grown and where it can produce food and how it can be done and what type of amelioration is necessary to do this and this and that. It's something that has kind of been archived in my mind for a very long time. And fortunately, I mean, if, if I assume that getting books done will allow it to be shared with everyone else. So that's what we're doing right now is trying to put it into books. Gotcha, man. Um, so when we look at the future of food with all of these different ideas, what is the like the, the biggest basis for the way that you you think here and for the things that you advocate here? Where what what can you point to and tell people, look, this really does work. We can really feed people this way. Okay, so let's let's first of all designate what type of plants we're talking about. So we have green leaves, we have tubers, we have fruits, we have vegetables, we have different uh, carbohydrates that we can extract from seeds. We have nuts. So all of these different panoplies can be considered as different food qualities. And when we look at different parts of the world, it becomes pretty obvious that there's some of these suitable for almost every region of the world. Even if I go to the Arctic, even if I go to the Mongolian deserts, even if I go to the hot deserts of Central and South America, even if I go to the swamps of uh, Brazil or Borneo, there is something in each of those categories that produces food. So my first and, and most relevant practical thing that is going to follow all of this work is the establishment of what I would call representative gardens around the world. And I speculate there will need to be about 30 of them that will more or less take in all of the climatic situations of the world, 30 different gardens. With those 30 different gardens, I want to see plantings of anywhere from 500 to 1,000 different kinds of plants. This will show a true bounty. At that point, the plants are growing. We're able to demonstrate them to 
the would-be visitor, and we can say, this is what this will do, this is what this will do, this is what this will do. When people ask me, can we actually grow this and produce food, my question is, have you ever met a person who is a nurseryman or a nurserywoman who hasn't been able, for the most part, to grow most of the plants they try to grow? So humans can easily collaborate with growing plants. There are some fastidious plants and some that have peculiar necessities, but the great majority of plants can be cultivated with the right know-how, at least understanding of the environment that the plant is from. So that's already the first thing. But then if people say, oh, well, didn't domestication take a very long time because the few that have read stories about the domestication of corn or the domestication of the banana or the domestication of cacao realize that, oh, it must have taken, you know, thousands of years to be selected. And I retort. I say, wait a second. Are you very much into uh, flowers or cut flowers? And they say, oh, yeah, I love cut flowers. My wife loves them or whatever. Think about in the last 40 or 50 years, how many wild jungle plants have become dominant and incredible house plants because there were selective breeding programs going on in the floriculture industry or in the horticulture industry, bringing an entire diversity of foliage plants that are now sold, you know, in every uh, type of box store and sold in every type of market to people who want to take home a pretty house plant. That is domestication. So the argument is relevant to food plants as well. In fact, many of the plants that grow in pots that are decorative for your house are also edible, which is another shocking surprise. But for me, the relevance of finding something in nature, then considering its adaptable ability, and then, shall we say, domesticating or working with it to ameliorate it, to make it better, is not that difficult of a process. But again, as you point out, unless there's an incentive on the part of industries, this is not going to be a thing. So we have to forget about industry. We have to think about those passionate individuals who, like Luther Burbank, end up changing the world. So it's not too ridiculous to assume that everyone has a chance to set path the forward for humanity. So let's talk regard. about GMO a little bit for a second. The, the, the defenders of GMO will say something really stupid, like man has been genetically modifying plants for 10,000 years because we selectively bred plants for 10,000 years. When, when we say genetic modification, that is not what we're talking about. We're talking about selective breeding, which is a, a big part of what you just described, Burbank being one of the pioneers in modern selective breeding. But this has been going on for thousands of years. Um, and, and I completely agree with the delineation between the two and the stuff that I see as dangerous is things like let's modify this corn so we can spray an herbicide on it that you're going to eat. I think that's a bad idea. I don't think we should be eating herbicide. And once you spray a persistent herbicide on a plant, you can't wash it off. It can never go away. But do you, well, these are, do you, these are systemic. I mean, when yeah. we put on glyphosate, yeah. glyphosate as, as it's described by Dr. McNeil is a chelator. It is preventing the plant from absorbing nutrients and the plant dies from starvation. Correct. That chelator element also affects human beings and hence it has the ability to deprive us of absorbing minerals according to, again, Dr. McNeil's simplifying it from my understanding. Yep. And so this is what we're seeing. But it doesn't take much common sense to think, hey, it's poisonous that kills plants. Uh, maybe it's not so good for us either. I mean, it's it's kind of a relation type of thing. Agreed, but here's where I'm going with this. So I've been attacked over the years as being anti-science because I'm you know anti-GMO. And what I've often said is 
I am not necessarily anti-genetic modification. I'm anti all of the genetic modification that I see being done. So here would be an example. I and many people in Texas grow tomatoes, and they do okay, but we have real persistence of both late and early blight. And there's a lot of things organically okay. you can do, but it does come back around. Now, do you have fusarium it, weld there too? Are we you, do. Are you talking about or fusarium? Yep, we absolutely do. But here's, here, it doesn't even matter. Let's just say, let's just say if it was only late blight that was the problem. If someone can actually, either through breeding or even genetic modification, create a tomato that is naturally blight resistant, I'm not necessarily opposed to that. Now, what might be done with it, who the hell knows? But I'm not necessarily opposed to that. But what I see being done in the GMO world has nothing to do with actually making a plant. And, and actually, what, what you'd be doing then is there is a way. There is a way with selective breeding to get there. Like sooner or later, we can actually develop that variety. There, we're close already with tomato varieties. Like the Fiant is one of the most um, resistant to these, all three of those diseases, honestly. So we're close. If you could shortcut what would be a natural progression, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. When the only reason you're doing it is to sell the chemical that goes with it and to patent life, that's where I start to get, like, this is like, you know, like sci-fi. It makes you sci-fi crazy, right? Like, like there's books that are 100 years old about the dangers of doing this shit. Why are we doing this? Is there, Do you see a difference between those two things? No, I agree with you completely because the motive behind this is not to necessarily assist anyone. Sure, you're going to recommend and you're going to suggest that you have an attribute that they want, but your real goal is to control it and to own it. And owning germplasm is inherently uh, counterintuitive because we all depend upon food supply, and therefore your work and your sweat should be what merits you owning it. And mm. that's the only thing, not because you have some genetic uh, involvement, but the work and sweat of actually growing the plant. So I have my way about it, approaching this in a legal uh, manner. Okay, so certainly one of the issues to me that is of, of great significance is that we are basically the entire plants is for the benevolent purpose of helping humanity. Unfortunately, there's more than ample evidence that it really is for enhancing profit of private corporations. With this interest, there is a conflict of interest between humanity and the corporations. And something that is extremely important to me is the ownership of germplasm. Because as more and more companies invest time in research, more and more are patenting or usurping the rights of plants. And this is happening all over the world. I have a very interesting story because I'm kind of, you know, following as a curious, curious George, the trends in biopiracy. And a few years ago, I was on the island of Madagascar. And it's kind of an interesting story for people to hear because I was getting in my car for the day and my driver came out and he was speaking in French and he said, merde. and I said, why are you angry? And, um, and he says, well, I only went seven minutes. And I'm like listening to him. No, it's seven minutes. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, if I would have had my handy, I could have gone for like an hour. And I said, what do you mean you're handy? And uh, you may be getting the nuance here. We're kind of talking about um, uh, copulative activity, right? So what was happening is he was talking about this plant that the Malagasy use regularly to increase their um, 
their virility okay. and their their interest. So this plant grows in Madagascar. So I got the name of the plant and I actually got some of the roots too because he was able to get it for me. And it turns out when I got back to Europe, I started doing research on it. And I had found out that a company in Sweden had been uh, following the efficacy. This isn't exactly like Viagra. It's not exactly like Cialis because it doesn't um, – it's not just about uh, Turger. It's about something else. It prolongs, it prolongs the man in terms of, uh, of his resistance. So they were trying to get a patent on this, and they were claiming that they had – first-hand knowledge and that it was somehow knowledge that was, uh, you know, scientific. And in order to substantiate this, they actually went out and they got two Malagasy scientists, who I kind of call patsies, who signed on to the scientific project in, in exchange for pay, and they wrote up this uh, thing to apply for a plant patent and a patent on this knowledge that had been, you know, commonplace in Madagascar for, for hundreds of years, perhaps. So all over the globe, we see biopirates going out and trying to patent things. I mean, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. I'll give you another good example that happened in the United States and almost got me arrested a couple of years back. Uh, there's a company which is called Wild Foods. It's up there in that epicenter where Procter & Gamble is near Cincinnati, uh, Ohio. So Wild Foods is one of the forerunners in the natural food additive uh, industry, and what they were looking for is a natural blue colorant, where there happens to be a plant known as Genepa Americana, and we actually were introduced to it in the movie with Sean Connor uh, called The Medicine Man, and if you'll recall, there was mm. a scene when that, that scientist came, that woman scientist, and she fell on the ground, and the little, the little Indian chief writes on her forehead with like this black ink. Black yeah. or blue ink. That was representing the, the, the ink coming out of the fruit of Genepa Americana. Well, when this fruit is harvested, I've, I have examples of harvesting the green fruits and rubbing them on my arm, and it completely stains your arm a dark cobalt blue, and it'll last that way for two or three days. Well, they found out they could extract a colorant from this fruit that could dye like Gatorade blue. A natural colorant. So no more FDA this, FDA that. This is a natural colorant, completely 100% natural from a fruit in Central and South America. And so Wild Foods went forward and patented this knowledge. And because there isn't common knowledge of any Central American Indians or any South American yeah. Indians, there were no, you know, uh, counter witnesses in the uh, patent case. It was granted. And I went to him. I said, you know, you are just complete thieves. Uh, well, I could, I could hit him off. I could go against him. I could, I could raise this issue in court and I could have it thrown out. But because there is such a nescience, people just are ignorant about all of this stuff. It just goes on constantly. And so corporations are not acting on the best interest of the world despite all the greenwashing that they put forth. It's all – there's a huge amount of hypocrisy. And biopiracy is alive and well in some of our biggest corporations, and it's happening right before our eyes. Just talking about the example with our grandfathers, how they would look at somebody claiming to own your seeds that you grew. And this is actual law now in the United States and many other countries. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of where I was going. Where I, I completely see the potential for the technology to be used in, in a beneficial way. 
I just have never seen it used in a beneficial way. And when you and, and when you like you said, when you added patenting a life form to it, the, the, the inherent evil, I think that that even represents. I, I do not believe that it should be in, in the realm of any civilized society. OK, for anyone to have exclusive rights to a life form like that is beyond the pale when it comes to unethical. That would be like having. Well, yeah, of course it is. I mean, but, but look at yes. Yeah, I mean, look how it happened though. The legal trade is separated from the science trade. We have all these people separated. There aren't generalists. They're not public intellectuals. They're not polymaths like they used it. If we had a polymath who could somehow say, "Hey, how can you possibly claim that you can own a plant? I like your legal system, but this doesn't extend yeah. to this realm. This is outside your domain. You can't patent this." Is is in and of itself, extent, it exists in nature. You don't own what exists in nature other than what's on your yard or what you're growing. Yeah. Here's an example of how that's, like, this is fortunately not enforced, but it shows the preposterous nature of it. Let's say that I buy uh, a blackberry plant to grow on my farm, and it's uh, a, oh, a, 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 a... A patented one. A patented one. It's a, uh, it's a uh, Primacane Blackbane, like, like Prime Gym, right? And it's, it's got a patent and a trademark in that case. And I am not supposed to propagate that plant. Well, what does a blackberry plant do when I plant it? It propagates itself. It sends up suckers. By, by suckers the hundreds everywhere. of thousands, it propagates itself. If I own a blackberry farm and I grow blackberries, it's illegal for me to take that sucker. I mean, people do it, but technically by the law, for me to take that sucker and pull it off and move it 10 feet and put it back in the ground unless I give the people that own the patent a dollar for every plant I do that with. The, the, the preposterous nature of that alone shows the unethical nature of it existing. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. So what do you suggest the future of food should actually be? Well, as, as I have sat down and I've spoken about this all over the world, I tell people that we have to somehow get a grip on our relationship to nature. And that is, that's the basis of what I'm proposing. I'm saying, okay, so yesterday, for example, I met in uh, Stockholm with a group of people planning a uh, smart city, a, a sustainable smart city that's integrated with nature. And part of our early discussion was covering the, the social implications of relating to nature. So it, it's appropriate for me to say that we have to think of where we want to be as human beings in our future with regard to the world around us. We can be closed in isolated bubbles and we can pretend that we're independent of nature, but we will never be independent of nature because of nature we are made. So my proposition is that we start relating to nature in a way that benefits us in both mental and physical ways and spiritual ways. And that is immersing ourselves in a certain way in our future with the nature around us. Now, in doing this, it should be music to your ears as a proponent of permaculture to think of people using every little piece of land they have to be resilient in food production. Now, of course, this pandemic of coronavirus, um, despite how each of us may perceive it, I consider it a great scam, uh, We've seen that it has disrupted a lot of things and the the concern comes closer to home. But I often tell people this is not a new issue. For example, 
Paris during World War II was cut off from most supply routes. And very few people realize that Paris survived the occupation because Paris had integrally had for literally centuries rings of farms right around its uh, exterior that produced the food that was essential to supporting Paris. That is the future of cultivation, producing food near where it is eaten. The diversity of plants that I have brought to attention is in the thousands. It's to say that in every place we can increase variety, but I haven't even touched upon a subject which should also be pertinent because our health is intricately involved in what we eat. Now, that doesn't mean if you eat and drink, uh, if you eat uh, donuts and you drink Coca-Cola, that you're necessarily malnourished, but it's to consider that if that's all you eat, you're not getting much nutrition. You're eating a lot of calories, but there's not much nutritive properties. There's probably some, but not much. I claim that the greatest potential for humans for proper nutrition extraction is the greatest diversity of foods possible. So I am a super omnivore. I eat everything. I eat plants. I eat crustaceans. I eat insects. I eat mammals. I eat fish. I eat practically anything that has been identified as edible. And I purport that the most important thing is diversity of plants because it has so much that we can get from it that, you know, every single plant is a superfood in its own right. And people don't consider this. They, you know, we get stuck on goji berries. We get stuck on kale. They have some great properties. But the diversity of plants and a varied diet offers us the greatest potential to extract a diverse and amazing source of nutrients, anti antioxidants, phytochemicals, everything you can imagine. That's something which very few people discuss. I think in my uh, history, I think I've eaten about 10,000 plus species of wild plants. So it's kind of a strange thing to claim fame to, but it's been what I've been telling people for a long time. And when people say, are these things that we can, you know, ramp up? I say, ramp up? Of course we can. They grow in nature already by themselves. All we have to do is add our human hand and some intelligence behind it. And we can be growing them everywhere. Absolutely. And I think we do need to do more with like, just plant a bunch of shit and see what grows. And then that okay, place well, you, grows. You just, th- that that place grows those things. Like um, I have, I have killed. This a is the most. This of, is the most basic. Right. I have killed a shitload of plants here in my 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 environment on my little property, my three acre property in Central Texas, is harsh even for the climate. This is a. There Where is are a, you? I, I am near Fort Worth, north of Fort Worth, but I am sitting on a Ooh. geological um, structure. There used to be the Great Inland Sea through the entire United States 50-plus million years ago. And I sit on a limestone structure, and I have places on my property where the soil is literally two inches thick before you hit, I don't mean rocks, I mean slab fossilized limestone ocean bed. So do you have you have yuccas growing on your property? Oh, I have yucca growing, yeah. Absolutely, and that's they, my point. Well, they, should be, they should have already flowered, or are they flowering right now? Uh, they're just about to. Just about. Okay, to. well, when they start flowering, you got wait, wait, in that particular realm there. That's yucca glauca. Mm-hmm. There's uh, various debated subspecies there, but yucca glauca is also known as Indian cabbage. Those flowers, harvest them, cook them up, just give them a light blanching, put some butter on them. Oh my gosh, they're spectacularly delicious. This is amazing. See, and that's that's har- that's harvesting the 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 local fauna. But my other side of that is I, you know, there's things I want to grow. So I have planted. 
I've done some things with really like raised beds and all where I, I'm building my own soil, so I grow whatever I want. But in the end, I also planted hundreds of varieties and I killed hundreds of varieties. But guess what? Some of it lived. And I'm like, well, I guess, you know, you mentioned goji. I can grow the ever loving yes. crap out of goji here. So guess what I do? I grow goji berries. You know why? Because they grow here. You know what I don't grow here? I, I don't go out of my way to grow oranges here because they die. So I don't grow oranges here. And I think that like, instead of trying to engineer a plant to grow in a place that it's not supposed to grow, figure out what grows there. Isn't that just like the most basic thing the humans did it's for hundreds of thousands so of what years? You're telling, what you are just repeating is what I have told people. I said, plant as many different things you can. Look at the results. They have to try a couple period of, of, of years. I mean, Tony Advent, who runs an incredible nursery, Plants Alive in North Carolina, uh, he has a story about this. And what he says is it takes him, he has to kill a plant three times before he, he after that. Okay. So the thing, of course, is when, when I tell people how we approach this in a pragmatic way, I say the first thing is to trial. And you've already, you know, you said that trialing is what you do in uh, North Central Texas. Trialing then allows us to find out which plants would do well in our environment. And counterintuitively, you don't try, as you say, to grow oranges in uh, north central Texas. So the point is, give a, yourself a bunch of plants that have the potential. This has been part of our basic research is being able to designate where things can grow, plant them, and then look for the successes. And my good friend who um, has run an extraordinary nursery called Plants Alive Nursery, his name is Tony Edmund, he has a motto. He says, if I can't kill the plant three times, there's a good likelihood that I can grow it. So uh, he, he trials things at least three times. One failure isn't enough. Two failures isn't enough. Third time, he'll say, okay, I've struck out on this one. But he, he, he says that perseverance is the key. So trying all of these plants is going to open up an incredible uh, venue of new crops and new plants to produce. It's exceptional that uh, a few years back, I was in Weathersfield, Connecticut, which is, you know, the northeast, the North Atlantic. And on a particular summer in 2014, I planted uh, gardens that were associated with Comstock and Ferry, which was owned uh, at that time by Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds, uh, which is from Mansfield, uh, Missouri. And that particular summer, I planted over 500 different species and varieties of food plants. And it was absolutely astonishing to me how many of them thrived despite my apprehension of them in the beginning. So it's a surprise even to somebody who's well uh, practiced in planting what nature will allow to succeed. So you never know. You just never know. I'm sure you've had similar experiences. Yeah. You mentioned the goji berry, I think. Yeah. And, and what I did, I did not plant like one of a thing and see if it grew. So what I would do is I would plant 20 of a thing and I plant it in 20 different places or maybe two each in 10 different places in microclimates all around the property. And I might find this thing hates 80% of my property but loves this spot. Okay, then it grows here. And it's, it's not it hard. It's not hard. It's like, okay, like I have a place where, believe it or not, when I first moved in here, growing dandelions was difficult. I could get dandelions. Dandelions didn't want to grow. That's how bad it was. It's It's a totally different world now. I've used animals to improve it. I've done all kinds of things. But... I also had a place where dandelions started growing, and I'm getting, I'm guess, well, that's where I get my dandelions from. I'm not going to try that's to make amazing. the dandelions grow 
in the northwest corner of the property where they don't want to grow. I'm going to let the dandelion grow where the dandelion wants to grow. And, and what we've tried to do is make a 400-acre square all grow corn, and nature doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. Like, there's no place in nature that anything looks like that. There's no place in nature that plants actually grow effectively that you can look at a square meter with one variety of plant in it. I defy anybody to show me a healthy ecosystem with a single square meter without multiple different plants growing there, and then you wonder why you can't make nature work that way because nature doesn't work that way. It Hello? doesn't work that way, does it? No, and it never will. It will never, ever, ever work that way. It will always be a problem. You will always be pissing into the wind while you push a boulder uphill. That's what you'll be doing every time you try to do that, and you're going to end up flat and covered in your own piss. That's the results that society has gotten metaphorically as a whole from this mindset. And and there's oh, there's no real good reason for it because we don't have to do this. Well, you know, just imagine at the same time this diversity gives another type of a cushion, a cushion against pests. I mean, if you have 50 different plants that are going to produce something for you, the likelihood is that they each have a different type of uh, perspective with pests. So a pest may attack one or two of them, but it's very uh, rare that it would attack all of them. And so in that sense, you have a resiliency, which few gardeners take in. I mean, I, I know over the years and, I, and all over the world, People ask me the question, well, don't you ever worry about, you know, pests? And I like look at them and I'm serious. I say, no, I don't worry about pests. If I have a plant that's. So um, give me one second here. Yeah, no so problem. one of the things about diversity is it offers a resilience to pests. And it's very, un it's very, very often it's confused. What? Let me start this over again. No problem. Just a second here. So for me, one of the things I tried to advocate is the use of diversity in plantings. I tried to give the example of the forest and I asked people, how many times have you seen the forest completely denuded of leaves because of a pest? Likewise, in your garden, if you have a great assortment of plants, it's very unusual for any particular pest to wreak much havoc. And so by having all of this uh, diversity, you have a resiliency towards pests. So in my life as a gardener, I've been asked, innumerable times what I do about pests. And my response is not a powder, a chemical, or a spray. It's more often than not teaching people that having this gamut, this pellet of plants to survive all types of onslaughts is the real resiliency. So I don't even spray or do anything because in each of these plants, there's a different biochemistry and it attracts a different pest. And it's extraordinarily rare that you have an onslaught of all at once. And so in that, we have something to promise the future. So one of the greatest things that I think that I can um, in, intelligently share with people is that in the example of nature, we have the example of how humans can incorporate that into the agriculture and horticultural, horticultural plantings, which means that if we take the the variety of nature and we put it into our gardens and we know how to use those plants, we have a, a plethora of things to harvest. We have great variety of nutrition and shockingly, we have the resistance that nature itself is bringing to the table in all of its forms, its myriad forms and, and essences. That to me is the true magic of relating 
to nature as humans should. And that's how I would like to basically, you know, close most of my things to kind of introduce people to the riches of nature and ask them rather than all this gloom and doom stuff of what we're losing and how biodiversity is, you know, disappearing off the planet. I ask them this, are you truly experiencing what nature offers you in your life? And most people think at that point, my gosh, I guess I'm not. And wanting is a part of inspiration in my opinion. Can, can you tell us about the book that you uh, published last year? Oh, well, that I haven't been able to read that book. OK, so, yes, <laughs> I did write it. I wrote it in English. But thanks to my colleague, Yu Onoshi in Tokyo, uh, he translated into Japanese and it was published by um, strange. <laughs> it's, it's really amazing. It, it's, it's published by these two strange plant geeks who are just crazy about bizarre plants. And so Yu Onoshi on a, on a trip that I had to Tokyo set me up with them to discuss the possibility of this book called Bizarre Edible Plants, Unknown Delicacies. And it took us exactly one day from our first coffee encounter to the next to shake hands on getting this published with them. And it was uh, emitted last year on uh, actually June the 19th. It was introduced at this uh, extraordinary plant show uh, in Osaka, and it was, you know, it's really amazing. I think we sold something like three or 400 books and I had to sit there and sign them the first couple hours that I was there. And so that book was published last year in Japan. But the sequel uh, to that is the volume series, which I'm trying to uh, now start finishing. And the first volume will be 672 pages. It's going to have roughly um, roughly three or 400 food plants from around the globe. It's both a pictorial artistic book but one which saturates the mind with the potential for food for the future because every single plant in it, I think this is true, I've eaten and I've eaten in place. And and that's one claim to fame that I like to point out because many of the food uh, biographies that we read and especially about wild edible plants are first – I'm not quite okay. sure where so, you are. So I, so I think that the most uh, difficult thing for me in trying to get this book done is not the information, which I already have, and I have the knowledge behind it, but it's sitting down in front of a damn computer <laughs> and actually having the patience to type text. This, I mean, to me, this is much more of a trial than climbing mountains and slagging through swamps. I mean, it really is the ultimate for me because I, I go crazy in front of that screen. Joseph, I want you know, to wrap it and I just can't. I, I'm going to do what I can to to, uh, to to make it as comfortable for the audience as all. This has been an amazing interview. I want to go ahead and wrap up with you here, though, at the end because we're having technical yeah. issues with you in, in Sweden. So uh, I'm guessing the book that was published in Japan is not available in English. Is that, that the case right now? And we're, we're waiting. That, 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 oh. I'm sorry. That little book is going to be translated into English okay. and it will be but the, the real volume that I'm proud of no. two page uh, book, which will be called Into Food Space 10, and it covers roughly three or four hundred species all over the world. I think it covers almost 70 or 80 countries. OK, just for the audience, we have had some uh, technical issues. I'm, I would have another 30 minutes with Joseph here if I could, but we're going to wrap up real quick. Joe, give us uh, you got a great website people can check out. They can connect with you on social media. I'll make sure that that's all available in the show notes, and we will have you back on to, to talk about this more because this has been a fantastic interview. 
Thank you very much. Thank you, Jack. I've enjoyed it, and sorry for the technical issues. We know we can't control that stuff. I'm in a no. hotel here and just hoping for the best. Swedish, Thank you so much. Swedish Hotel Internet, man. But this has been great. I will definitely have you on again and have your friend fill out the form because we'll have them on as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. I, I'm just going to say, based on my intro and then that interview, despite some of the technical issues that were probably related to Internet in a hotel in Stockholm, Sweden, talking to somebody across the Internet in the Fort Worth area of Texas. Um, I told you so. I, I, I really cannot wait because, like, I had no idea how amazing this guy was. And had I known, instead of just, this is one of these people, instead of having them just do setup questions, I would actually have had an agenda for this show. Um, I My mind is swimming with shows that, that Joseph and I can do in the future. He may become a regular on the show. I don't know if we'll put him on expert counsel. I don't even know if he'd be able to do that with all his travels, but um, I don't know that I've ever had a, a, a person that I like consciously, immediately thought this person should be a regular guest uh, the way I feel about Joseph. Just awesome, awesome guy doing amazing, amazing work. Um, again, I hope that the, the technical issues that we had toward the end there didn't you know, kind of ruin it for some people because I did the best I could with it, guys. And, you know, God throws things at you sometimes, and sometimes those those are uh, computer gremlins and uh, communications gremlins. All right, so with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. I want to remind you, if you like this show and the work that I do, you can help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That is T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Go there anytime you're going to shop online. Start there, and you help us no matter what you buy. I have a new item for you today. It is the Miraco electric kettle. Wait a minute, electric kettle. Jack, didn't you have some electric kettle you've been on and on, you know, on and on, on and off again about for like years now that you said is the greatest value that there is in kettles? I did. I did. It's the Hamilton Beach electric kettle, and I still think it's a pretty good kettle. It's costs about thirty bucks. The new one, the Miraco electric kettle, costs forty five. It's fifteen dollars more. So why? Well, I have finally killed my Hamilton Beach kettle. Took over five years. Took over five years. And that means that it ran a lot of missions. It ran, you know, for at least five years. That little kettle, that little kettle that could, ran at least four missions a day, seven days a week, making us coffee, tea, etc. I did the math today, and that little Hamilton Beach kettle flew a minimum of 7,300 sorties, man. And I finally killed it. And I didn't even kill it. It still worked. But the little latch that kept the lid closed broke, so it wouldn't hold the lid closed. And if the lid stays open, it won't stop boiling when it hits boiling. It won't turn itself off. So I need a new kettle. I was just going to buy another one. I mean, you know, five and a half years for a kettle is a long time. You know, like I said, 7,300 missions. It's probably more like 10,000 missions this thing this thing completed. So uh, what do you want for 30 bucks, right? Do the math on, on the cost per boiling the uh, seven, you know, a liter and a half of water. But I was like, you know what? This is an opportunity for me to find a new kettle that's even better. Five years later, there should be better technology. Can I find one? And I found this uh, Morocco uh, 1.7 liter electric kettle that is temperature adjusting. You can heat water to 100 degrees, or you can hit water to 212 degrees, and you can hit anything in the middle of that in five degree increments. You want to do 175 degrees, you set it, and it heats to 175 degrees. So why would you want to do this? Well, did you know there actually is ideal temperatures to brew different things at? Like, you know, when you boil your water and you make your coffee, it comes out pretty good. But the best temperature to make French press coffee is 200 degrees. It really, and I tried it. I wasn't, I was skeptical, but I tried it, and it really is better that way. It really does come out better. Oolong tea, about 190 degrees. Uh, green tea, 
like 175. Uh, I personally think that you're, you know, you're, you're really uh, best off at about 205 degrees for herbal teas. And the whole thing is you can figure it out for yourself. So this is kind of like sous vide for your coffee. If you determine that you like your coffee best brewed at 185 degrees, you can have that every time. So that is a really cool feature. But it also has another feature. It's called keep warm, and I think they should have called it keep hot. Because whenever you set the temperature out, it keeps it there. Again, like sous vide for your coffee. So here's a typical thing that happens to me. I put the kettle on, and I hit boil, and I go out the door to take care of the ducks. And three or four things that are supposed to just be fine are wrong, and I have to fix them, and I forget about it, and I get distracted. I come back in the house, I go back out, and it's been like 45 minutes, and I haven't had my coffee, and I go back to the kettle, and the water is not hot anymore now. i got to sit there like a schlub looking at it, waiting for the water to heat back up. Well, this one, once I hit it to 190 degrees, and then I say, hold when I come back, the water will be within 8 degrees of that temperature. What it does is it goes up to that temperature, and it says, okay, I'm at 200 degrees now. And when it falls to 192, it kicks back on, goes back up to 200. It just keeps doing that for you. So even if you're going to be really particular and you want it back to your temperature, all you do is restart it, and you only wait a couple seconds to get back there. So that's cool. Then remember I used to tell you you could boil eggs in an electric kettle? Yeah, well, the one I used to recommend, I tolerated this. I didn't like it, but I tolerated it. Really small lid, so you had to take a pair of tongs and put your eggs in it. This one has a great big opening. You can easily just put four eggs in there with your hands. Be careful getting them out. You will burn yourself. But you can hard boil your eggs in it. Okay. And if you play with it, and I haven't yet, there's no reason you should be able to figure out, like, if I set it to 165 degrees, let's say, and let it sit there for X amount of time, I'm going to get a perfect soft yolk. I don't know exactly what the formula is, but once you figure it out, you'll know it, and you've got a multitasker. I hate unitaskers. And if you brew beer or make meat or anything, an electric kettle is great, and one with precision control, even better. Next up, no plastic on the inside at all. The old one that I recommended had a little plastic window because you see how much water is in there. This one you'll have to open it up to see it, but that's not really a big deal. So zero plastic comes in contact with your boiling water. So additionally, the Hamilton Beach is painted on the outside, and eventually the paint starts to flake off. It doesn't look good. This one has a, like a plastic cool tech, you know, thing on the outside of it. That's I mean, it should last longer than I like. I'll die before that plastic will wear off or, or look. So it looks great. It's a little bit bigger, takes up a little more space, but it looks good. I actually put more effort into this than you might think. When I decided to get a new other, this will be easy. Holy crap, it was not easy. There's so many competing products. I got this one down to the finals against one made by Krups. I really like Krups. They're a good brand. And this one just costs less, does more, works better, gives you more options. So Krups lost. But this took some effort. And I had somebody ask me already, like, why would you put this much effort into a freaking kettle? Well, because it's something I use every day. It's something I'm making an investment in that I use every day, and that's why I put the effort in for myself, and that's why I put the effort into these reviews for you guys. So check this thing out. It's made by a company called, and I think it's Morocco is how you would say it. It's M-I-R-O-C-O. When you first look at it and glance, it looks like it says micro. This thing is not micro. It's a substantial piece of equipment, but it works really, really good. And I'm telling you, you got to try experimenting with different temperatures of water in brewing your different coffees. And you might even get really... I know I have a friend of mine who I know is going to do this now, David. He, You're going to sit there and say, I'm take this coffee, ground this way, and brew it at 190, and I'm going to brew it at 195, and I'm going to brew it at 200 and see which way I like it best. 
and you might actually come up with custom brew temperatures for specific coffees if you're so inclined. I'm just going to go with 200 degrees. But, hey, you know, I try to empower you guys to live that better life, even with little things like how you heat your water. Now, if you're like, I'm never going to use that, I'm just going to put it on, turn it on, and boil water, you can do that with this by the Hamilton Beach. That thing lasted, I mean, I am not taking that down. I'm not taking it away as a recommendation. This is just the next level. And uh, I'll put it to you this way. I would say, all in, based on all the, and I looked at a bunch of product, you're getting about 15 bucks in extra value for the price here. So you're buying an item that's going to cost you $45. I think anything that can compete with it at all is 60 bucks. That is price-to-value ratio in your favor. That's what I always look for. Always be frugal, never be cheap. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today. Song of the day today comes from Kenny Chesney off his album, No Shoes, No Shirt, No Problems. But it is not that song. It's called Live Those Songs. I think this is from like 2002 or 2004, somewhere in that range. This is one of those songs that like a lot of the song is mentioning other songs. That's what the songs are talking about living, and it comes from the perspective of a Vietnam veteran. It's got some symbology in it, too, though. It says something like uh, a new haircut and a bachelor's degree. That would be the GI Bill. New haircut and a bachelor's degree. Um, that's in this song. There's a lot of references to other songs. And this is common for Kenny Chesney. Kenny Chesney has a lot of this going on. Uh, I can't remember. the. Uh, I Go Back was another song that has that in it. Uh, Jackie and Diane painted a picture of life in my dreams, right? Like that. Uh, he's just a very common thing for this artist to do, and it really works. This song is great. I don't have a big, deep meaning about it or anything, but, uh, you know, we had a really insightful, high energy, and intellectual show today. And sometimes after that, you just need something that's fun. So there is some deep meaning in this song, but maybe just... Let it be a really great song that makes you think about a lot of other great songs that takes you back to places in your life and just enjoy it. Because that's the real magic of these, these songs like this. By conjuring those other songs, they take us to our place that we remember listening to that music at. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of The Survival Podcast.
Oh, again. 